Welcome to Light Treason News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of treason. I'm joined today by Meredith. Hello. How are you? I mean, I know how you are, but like, let's pretend like we didn't just have a full catch up. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, off air. Uh, I'm I'm doing well. I've had a lovely and relaxing weekend, uh, but I may be living that uh, scary stories to tell in the dark story of being spider egg host lady. Yes. So we should we should explain. Meredith currently has a strange rash um, breaking out across her body. Yes. And we don't know what it is. So we have both decided it is probably spider yeah. eggs. In, you know, in reality, it's probably an allergic reaction to a sure. detergent that I hadn't used before or some nonsense. Absolutely. But, that's what it is. But also it's spider eggs. Yeah. yeah somehow it's the same. It's both at the same time. Uh, yes, yeah. it is. Um, it's nothing, and also your worst nightmares come to life. Yeah, uh, mostly I am happy to have not had anything to do for the last two days because I've had to spend the entire past week on Zoom calls with my video camera on. I hate it. I, it should be illegal. Anytime someone's like, "Can you turn on your camera?" I'm like, "Can you fucking die?" Uh, Sorry, it, I know that's harsh, but no. Why do you need to see me in these stupid meetings? It's absolute violence. Like, don't do that to me. Like, it's. I uh, will say. You're a genius for having ordered a ring light because the first time I've never used a ring light on a Zoom call or meeting, but the first time I had a friend put one of those portable ring lights on their phone when we were taking a selfie, I was like, oh, am I a model? Yeah, I I was inspired because uh, during uh, a nightmare disastrous trip to Colorado, uh, I ended up staying one night in a hotel that had like the gorgeous ring light lighting uh, over in the like bathroom sink light. It's like I don't ever feel the presence of God until there's like good lighting. And then I'm like, yes, Yes. I was. I get it. I was exhausted, hungover and had been crying for about 12 hours and I still looked gorgeous. Yes. Fierce as fuck. Good lighting truly is a miracle. Yeah. And bad lighting is the devil. Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever, like, caught sight of yourself in, like, a dive bar with really shitty, like, yellow lighting and you're like, yikes, who's that 90-year-old woman? Oh, yes, that has happened. And it is... Ooh, that's rough. Uh, especially sometimes if you got a little shine because you haven't put the foundation... Sure. And like your lipstick faded everywhere except like the outline of your mm-hmm. lips. Yeah. So you look Great. like the ancient, you look like the ancient woman who was always played mm-hmm. by one of three really old school actresses who died in like 2005, who was like yep. a, was yep. in classes with James Dean and like personally knew Uta Hagen and then was just yeah. always the barfly lady from like yeah, the last 15 LA. years. Moved to LA when she was 18 to make it big in Hollywood. And now this is what she does on her Friday nights. Yeah. Uh, she haunts this bar and she curses any young person <laughs> who speaks with her. Um, yeah. What are we talking about? Oh, good lighting. Yeah. Good lighting is amazing. So you're a genius for having ordered a ring light. It's going to change your life. You will no longer fear Google Zoom meetings. Oh, thank goodness. Google Zoom meetings? What the fuck? Zoom meetings. Google meetings, Zoom meetings, anything where someone Google makes me put my Zoom. camera on. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, it's so awful. Um, so 
guys, this is Light Trees and News. Here's how it works. We talk about pop culture first. I'm going to be honest with you. We mostly talk about pop culture these days because that's all my tiny brain can handle without me having a complete meltdown. And this is with me being medicated. So you can imagine um, if I was not. So uh, Meredith and I have a shit ton to talk about. We're going to talk about a bunch of um, movies. Um, but I want to say up top, I, I think we have to talk about spoilers or we have to include spoilers when we review the following films because I really don't know how we would talk about it otherwise. So if you do not want to hear spoilers for The Green Knight, Suicide Squad, Old, which is an insane film I need to talk about, uh, and or Pig. I won't spoil Pig because Meredith hasn't seen it yet, um, but the other films are fair game. So if any of those you have not seen and you're like, but I really like don't spoil that for me, please skip ahead to the music cue because I don't know how we will talk about these films without including spoilers. Um, right? right. Am I? I okay. I think it's less of a problem with The Green Knight because that movie is just such a vibe uh, that the story ends up being a little less important, but absolutely for old. And um, yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess let's start with The Green Knight since you and I both saw that and obviously loved it. It's super divisive. I, I really was surprised by how divisive uh, it is. Did your showing have any walkouts? Uh, no, although my showing only had about eight people in it. On a, It was okay. a Wednesday evening in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, so it was not exactly going to be a hot ticket. <laughs> it's not hopping. Yeah, so I saw it in Park Slope, so it was actually, it sold pretty well. It still felt kind of empty because they're doing that uh, staggered seating mm-hmm. due to Lady Delta, um, but a couple did walk out and they were pissed. They clearly didn't know what the Green Knight was or what they had signed up for, and they they did not look like they had a good time, and I've chatted with some people about this movie some people love it some people whose film opinions i also really respect hated it um and i'm kind of surprised like when i was watching it i i wasn't thinking wow this is really going to divide a room that's interesting i don't know anyone who felt anything less than passionate love for it um now the people that you know who loved it were they familiar with the arthurian tale uh they were certainly familiar with arthurian legend they didn't all know the 14th century poem um and i went into it having um having read that in college and remember having a paper i really enjoyed writing that still only gave me a b which i was always very disappointed by sorry guys um and no no, hold (laughs) grudges uh so I was, I, I knew it, but they're, yeah, people just really, they were just really digging the, the feel of it, the sense of, um, a lot of my nerdy dude friends really connected with Dev Patel's performance. <laughs> like they, yeah. they got, like I've heard several people say that they really connected with the sense of his uncertainty and imposter syndrome, which, um, yes. and it's also significant because those, those same men are all men of color. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I, I do want to talk <laughs> about Dev's performance because it was really nuanced and interesting and he did 
such a great job of conveying, yeah, that vulnerability and insecurity. Um, but that's so interesting that that's who's connecting with the character because it's kind of like, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'll say I am not familiar with the poem. I never read the poem. I knew enough about Arthurian legend to be like, ah, okay, this is King Arthur. That's his sister who's a witch. Like it started to come back to yeah. me, you know? But I can also see if you have no background with that, watching it and being like, what the fuck is happening? You know, I mean, on one level, I understand that and I appreciate it. But also, it's only the most obvious, uh, like, allusion to Christianity destroying Mm. pagan nature-based religions and the danger of doing that unthinkingly. I mean, it's like, so, it's like literally right there. You don't need to know. I would think that you wouldn't have to know the the technicalities or the details of King Arthur and Guinevere and the Knights of the Round Table. You could watch it and, yeah, pick up on those broader themes of, oh, this is about man's arrogance and him thinking he has dominion over the earth and uh, he's actually insignificant. Um, but, yeah, so – if you have not seen the film, um, the gist of it is uh, Dev Patel's character is the nephew of King Arthur. He is surrounded by these legends, the the Knights of the Round Table, but he has not done anything. <laughs> he has not gone anywhere, and he feels very insecure about that. And then one day, uh, he's able to prove himself and be a big man in front of the other knights because the Green Knight shows up and um, basically says, if one of you is brave enough to... Uh, strike a blow against me. Um, I will return that blow in kind. In one year's time. The short of it. So it's it's in one an opportunity time. for someone to prove themselves and to do this. But he's this is clearly a test he has offered to other, right? You know, other kingdoms, so, other warriors. Dev, thinking that he is clever, is like, ah, I will cut off his head because if I cut off his head, he cannot return <laughs> that in one year's time because he will be very dead. So he does that, and then, uh uh-oh, the Green Knight picks up his own head. Uh, He's immortal. He cannot be killed. (laughs) So sort of a rude wake-up call for Dev's character because it's like, oh, shit, now I have to, um, you know, uh, pay pay the bill in one year's time. And also just a good lesson. If somebody who's very scary comes and says (laughs) – this is the deal, and then kneels before you and exposes their neck as if to say, come on, bro, go for the real kill shot. Maybe he's tricking you. Yeah, like, I I did wonder why it didn't occur to anyone at any time that something was amiss. I mean, first of all, the the film interprets the poem very literally and actually makes the Green Knight a tree, very reminiscent of Lord of the Rings. Um, it's like an ant is riding around on a horse, which I enjoyed. Um, but yeah, the, I guess in this world, that is not an unusual thing. And it didn't occur to any, literally anyone in the room that it was odd when he offered his head <laughs> to be chopped off. Um, but, but Dev tries to put on a brave face and he's like, remember what happened here today? He really wants to carve out his legacy. Um, and then that year it flies by it passes real fast. Yeah. When you are going to die in a year, that year goes very, very quickly And then he has to go on this odyssey where he goes to the Green Knight um, and encounters all weird manner of of creatures, including a ghost. And how do you say Barry's last name? Keegan. Keegan. Barry Keegan, who is like a, a, 
a beast. That guy can be in a film for two minutes and steal the entire film. Um, he encounters Joel Egerton and um, and has an, a long running relationship. He has a relationship with a servant girl played by Alicia Vikander, and then later encounters a you know a fine lady who's also played by Alicia Vikander. Um, yeah, she yeah. plays two roles in the film, and still somehow um, feels like she's only giving fifty percent. So I know I I really really try my best to connect with her, and I'm like. I do feel like I feel like fifty percent is generous. I feel like she's giving twenty percent at all yeah. times, and I'm just like, what is happening? Although um, I don't know that there is, I just don't know that there was much space for a like a female characters. It was so true. much about deconstructing the hero's journey and creating opportunities for, um, even when he gets it right, for him to still suck at it. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, that her blankness almost works. Like, I, you know, yeah. I guess more when she's playing the lady than when she's playing the the servant girl, his his beloved. Because um, I just don't buy her as a low born British girl. <laughs> right now, you're probably wondering: Is there a hand job scene? Um, yeah, there is, including uh, a, a money shot, which yeah. I was that surprised me. The hand job itself, I was like, "All right, we're we're doing a hand job scene." But then to show the ejaculate, I was like, "My goodness, yeah, yeah, the Green Knight." Well, we went there, and uh, that's what's so disappointing about the way that that section of the film goes with Joel Edgerton as well, because in the poem, that Lord. That essentially that character mm-hmm. is the Green Knight. So it's a test of people. He goes and he's got the hospitality and the deal he makes with the Lord is that anything that he receives, uh, like any gifts that he receives, oh. he then shares, you know, he would share the same with the Lord. So there is a moment where he, like the kiss is actually in the original poem. Um, right. Well, that, that, so I, so, because I have no yeah. experience with the poem, I was like, oh, like Joel and Dev having a little kiss. I was surprised. And I was like, good for this film. Well, I like in 2021 the- being brave. And then you were like, that's in the original poem. And I was like, God damn it. I know. Well, <laughs> it probably wouldn't have worked the same way I mean, because he's not actually the Green Knight. It doesn't make sense to have had him give a hand job. You know what I mean? Right. Like it just sure. was unnecessary because the general you know, principle was the, that he was leaving without having fulfilled his promise to this guy. Mm. Um, but it was, you know, I still thought, yeah, this is good. Kisses, kisses Joel Edgerton, which that was attractive. It was, it was a nice little moment. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, as I mentioned, Barry, Barry's like this, uh, very disturbing, um, young trickster, like wand- highwayman. Kind of like pirates, mm-hmm. yeah. He has a little uh, band of pirates, and they tie up Dev, and they steal his shit, and uh, it's a, a very scary scene. Um, but Dev survives all of this, and he finally gets to the Green Knight. Um, and I think the best part of the film is the ending. And what we see is we see two versions of reality. The first is what we think is reality, where um, Dev offers his head to the Green Knight. The Green Knight lifts the axe or lifts his sword and is about to cut off his head. And Dev freaks out and runs away. And he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I can't fulfill my obligation. And he runs off um, like a coward, but a coward who gets to live. And then we see 
what happens yeah. to the rest of his life having made that huge decision um, and the rest yeah. of his life well, is that he gets I was going to say yeah, we go probably don't need to get too into that. I feel like that's one thing I would want to like leave unspoiled because it's such yeah. that that stretch of the movie, the way that it's illustrated and the work that you see Dev Patel doing without actually speaking pretty much at all is some of the most powerful acting that I've seen. And it just provides such a fascinating counterpoint to the narrative that you expect of in a story of a young man going out to, to find his fortune and like what we expect from heroes and superheroes now, where there's always a way Mm -hmm. to outsmart the bad guy. Um, And I, it just, I felt really, really moved. And then like, that that is one version and then we come back from that and he takes a slightly different approach and then right. before we actually see what happens it's like cut to black <laughs> yeah and and what i do find so effective about it is you know the visual the visuals in this film are stunning like i i don't even have enough time to run through everything that i found like so beautiful and captivating but like the giants you know the the castle itself how it's falling apart like everything the costuming is is gorgeous crowns like king arthur and queen guinevere's crowns like i don't know that i have ever seen something more beautiful and more perfectly evocative of like the both the majesty and power and also weight of being at the top of the food chain during such a brutal, dark, gross time. Right, right. Their heads looked Um, like they were literally, like, hanging heavy. And that, it just, and they're just beautifully designed. So that that just really, so nice. Right. And as you mentioned, there's very, very little dialogue at the end of the film. And it's 100%. I hope Dev Patel can pull this off. And he really pulls it off. I was like, watching him, I was sort of like, he should be a bigger name than I like. I know he's famous right now, but I'm like, he is an incredible actor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, he's spoken about this during his last couple press tours, just the sense of having to prove himself again and again, because he's yes. still not considered for the kind of roles that he can obviously play because right. his name is racism. Death to Tell. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry. Racism. Please, please <laughs> let me touch your hair. Not because, not in the creepy way, but in the like, please, I'd like to have sex with you. And I, this is my way right. of caressing your beautiful, beautiful, beautiful locks. Like it's, <laughs> and it, it's so interesting because obviously how we were introduced to him was Slumdog Millionaire, which was almost like Hollywood being like, you're allowed to be in this film. Mm-hmm. You can be a leading man for this film because this film is about you people. But Everybody has been commenting about this casting choice because it's like, yeah, because Hollywood doesn't put someone like Dev Patel in an Arthurian tale. And guess what? You can do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, also you can easily do that. And, you know, and you don't even have to get that far into trying to think through it because we're talking about fucking fictional characters and his mother is a goddamn witch. Like his Meredith, (laughs) I would be so afraid to see a poll of americans that asks was king arthur (gasps) oh that's not i would be terrified to see how many people because i bet you some people were like this is a real story and you're changing 
these characters' races. And it's like, they're not real. None of this is real. We can do whatever the fuck we want. Well, I mean, people got so upset over the Hunger Games. This is still, you know, oh, got, um, I mean, I also want to say that when the Green Knight was uh, two things, when it was originally supposed to come out last summer, this was, it would have been a full summer of Dev Patel because he was in this and he was in the David Copperfield which film, is great. Which is delightful. I can't remember. I think I did recommend it on the show, but if you haven't seen that film, he's also incredible in that. Yeah. And then another thing I learned when I was listening to a podcast about, about this is that during the pandemic, David Lowry went back and re-edited the entire film because he yes, wanted I to make that. it weirder. He felt like <laughs> yeah. because the pandemic had screwed up his attempt at making like a commercial audience, like potentially audience friendly epic film. He's like, well, fuck it. I guess I'm just going to try and make it as weird as I want. And so he he made it more episodic and dreamier. And I I hope someday it's possible to compare the two because I really want to know what his version of the so-called commercial film would be. But I thought that making it into something that just sits with you and is an atmosphere that envelops you like a fog, like an Irish fog. <laughs> it's it's yeah, just it so great. rare that you see something that is like this entertaining, um, this visually stunning and legitimately poses like huge moral questions. Well, and also that isn't afraid to take risks. I mean, this... How, you know, this, you know, David Lowry just said, all right, I'm going to make a movie about Gawain and the Green Knight, and it's going to be really impressionistic, and there's not going to be simple resolutions and all of this stuff. And they were like, yeah, okay. Like, I really appreciate (laughs) that he has, like, been taking such big swings with movies that are intended to be more than just like tiny art house movies. Like when he made a ghost story, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think the theme of this episode with the recommendations is going to be big swings because (laughs) that is, um, (laughs) at least in terms of what I'm about to recommend, definitely an ongoing theme. So I guys, I liked the suicide squad. Sue me. What do you want from me? I think it's a good time. I think um, it's definitely an improvement. I, I'll be honest with you. I did not see the original Suicide Squad because I hate Jared Leto and I'm so sick of seeing the Joker um, also, I don't, depicted in films. I don't know that you can really call it the original since it only came out a few years ago. And so we just <laughs> can pretend it never happened. Well, and clearly, like, they don't know what to call it either because you can't call it a full reboot. Um, you can't call it a sequel because they're trying to forget the first film, even though the first film made a shit ton of money. I think they're, you know, um, I don't know if DC Films is like embarrassed. I don't know. But they're clearly trying to distance themselves from the terrible reviews the first one got. Mm-hmm. So they poached James Gunn from Marvel because James Gunn uh, was a piece of shit on Twitter and said a bunch of gross shit. And, and Marvel was like, well, we cannot employ you anymore because um, you're going to cost us money. Yeah. Um, or I should say Disney says this. And like funny so, that Disney only re- like only thought about this when yes. this happened, when Gunn has spoken at length about his background in fucking trauma movies. And yes. if you've seen Slither, you know the guy is into some <laughs> gross shit. <laughs> gross shit. And, um, you know, was doing the stupid quote unquote edgy comedy 
back in the day and made a bunch of terrible jokes that Disney was uh, right to red flag and be like, well, you have to go. So um, DC immediately poached him because he had made Guardians of the Galaxy, which was hugely successful for Marvel. But Suicide Squad, really, the Suicide Squad feels very Guardian 3.0 because he they actually did bring him back to direct uh, 2.0. Mm-hmm. And actually the next one, too. So maybe this is like 4.0. Um, but it, it does have that spirit of like, this is a team of misfits. They're broken people. Uh, will they come together to, to win the day? And of course they will. Um, but it's fun. Like, I don't know if you just want to like turn off your brain and watch a bunch of, um, really violent, colorful fight sequences. This is the film. Um, Margot Robbie. I never want to see anybody ever play Harley Quinn ever again (laughs) for many reasons. Like I just, I don't want to keep seeing reboots of the same thing over and over, but also she nailed it. Nobody else is going to play Harley Quinn like Margot. Um, so I would hate to see anyone try. Idris Elba is so fucking charming. It like does not matter who he's playing, what film he's in. You know he's going to crush it. And he's amazing in The Suicide Squad. Um, uh, but yeah. it, it's... Go oh, ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, haven't, I haven't watched it, but I am aware of... Uh, sort of at least how things start out. I've heard great things. I probably will watch it at some point because largely because I've heard, I took the fact that James Gunn has a really cynical take on how all of this stuff goes. And he's like unafraid to do this stuff. And he seems to take such glee in, you know, messing with expectations in really brutal ways. And I was like, that is a review that makes me want to watch this. (laughs) Well, it's also interesting that this guy who worked for a huge institution like Marvel then directed a film about a bunch of misfits who are controlled by the U.S. government and sent on a suicide mission and basically used as pawns. Like, there definitely is a macro critique of what happened with James and Marvel in this film. I feel like, like not that he approaches it from a, a perspective of bitterness, but the, this is definitely a man who felt like he was cast out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting. Uh, yeah, and I, I thought they, I'm intrigued by the cast and, um, and I suppose this is a good way to segue into the question of (laughs) what they do with the cast in the first several minutes of the movie. So I was texting Meredith during this because (laughs) I was just dreading watching Pete Davidson act. I was like, I don't want to sit here and watch this dude try to get his work his way through an entire uh, film, even though he was pretty good in that film that was just basically about his life. Um, I forget the name of the film, but it's like not fully autobiographical, but it's like his dad was a firefighter. His dad died. Um, but he was good in that, I think, because he was, like, playing himself, basically. Yeah, yeah. But I was not looking forward to him being in this film. And let me just say, um, he and everybody else who you think is actually on the quote-unquote Suicide Squad are brutally gunned down within the first 15 minutes of this film. You don't have to worry about watching Pete Davidson act. He's gone. He can't hurt us anymore. <laughs> um <laughs> And then you find out that the actual The Suicide Squad is on the other side of this island, that this first The Suicide Squad team were decoys because um, this 
the government controlling them doesn't give a shit about them. So they're basically uh, disposable. And we meet up with the real squad uh, soon after the fake squad is mowed down. But that was a really nice fake out because I really didn't know that was coming. And I was just like, they just killed everybody. But then I was immediately was like, oh, Idris isn't there. Um, so, yeah, it uh, it was a nice way to deal with a problem up front in a very funny, surprising way. Yeah. And I think... Uh... I, you, this is your area, and I know that there are a lot of listeners who are very big into the comic book movies and appreciate this <laughs> stuff. I have definitely hit the moment of fatigue, and so there's, I have very limited time unless it is sure. gross. You know, I need something that's happening in the background, uh, which is fine. That can be great. Sometimes it's delightful. But uh, Rosie is a huge fan of the DC universe, huge which Marvel. is why. No, no, huge Marvel DC yeah. fan. <laughs> she's, that's the thing, though. It's like she only likes DC. She's a huge. <laughs> she's a huge Aquaman stan. Um, sure, uh, but who amongst us isn't? Also, imagine Jason Momoa holding a corgi. Just imagine it for a yeah. second. Treat yourself. Mm-hmm. Visualize it. All right, and we're back. Uh, we're back. But this is so. This is where I sort of don't have that much to offer. But I'm always curious about what you have to, what you think, um, especially since it seems like DC is finally getting their act together in terms of. So that that's also what I find it interesting about it because I'm not a huge DC fan. Like mm-hmm. I can't talk at length about it. Like I can the MCU. But it's really interesting that they poach James Gunn because it is like watching the DC cinematic universe being uh, uh, marvelized. <laughs> Marvel- <laughs> I don't know how you would say that. Marvelized. Um, and that's interesting because I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing. Because if if our main complaint about the MCU is they're too dominant. Mm-hmm how much more homogenized are things going to get if DC suddenly becomes like Marvel 2.0, you know? But let's, the biggest problem with the DC universe was just the darkness. I mean, the specific literal darkness of the palette, but the lack of joy. And I think that getting into like finding people who can bring a little bit of originality as opposed to just bringing in the Joss Whedon touch up, like, Right. And and completely fucking up that film. Like, I know people were making fun of, like, you know, the Snyder Cut bros online. But having seen the Snyder Cut now, I'm like, man, Joss Whedon did fuck up his movie. I do Mm -hmm. understand, like, why those fans were pissed. Um, Right. So, yeah. But, I mean, speaking of DC continuing to be dark now, we have... uh, the Batman coming out. Oh, uh, but I'll see that because like Robert Pattinson is so weird. Like if it, I love him, if it means that he makes a bunch of movies like the lighthouse and good time and high rise or high life. Uh, yep. And, um, that the one that was a Don DeLillo, the Cronenberg cosmopolis, was it? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. If he decides, if this gives him the money that means he keeps doing all of his weird stuff. I'm He's got to get it. that Batman money. Yeah, yeah. like get that Batman I mean, money. So we Kravitz, Paul Dano. Like, I'll be, I am okay when Batman gets like dark like that, but I don't want to see a dark, gritty Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, like I think it's okay to be light and funny when dealing with these films um but, and to be self-aware that it the stories are ridiculous and it's okay if we acknowledge well the, ridiculous. the problem is when they get ponderous like the darkness isn't the issue it's the it's being boring like 
what was mm-hmm. the issue, what I hated so much about the Batman, like the Affleck Batman movies until the Snyder cut was that they were just so fucking dull. I was like mm-hmm. this. I felt like I was at a bar. You know how when you have a dude friend who's like kind of a piece of shit, but still thinks mm-hmm. of himself as real sensitive and misunderstood. Sure. And he gets a little bit too drunk and he starts like tearing up a little bit because he doesn't understand why people are so hard on him or he just is like trying to do what he can. And he starts to get really, really maudlin and self-pitying as he's like drinking whiskey and eventually he cries on your shoulder and passes out and then doesn't pay you back for the cab. (laughs) This is in no way based on something that actually happened. Not at all. (laughs) Uh, But that's what I felt like. I was like, oh, you've got mommy issues. I don't need this right now. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have to deal with this in my real life. Why would I come to the movies to hear another guy complain about yeah, this? Yeah, why would I listen to the strongest man in the universe and any, a billionaire? Like, but but their moms have the same name. Oh, Did you think about it? Oh, Did you think about yeah, it? Yeah, well. Would you, would you hang the entire premise of your film on that fact? <laughs> If I also had mommy issues, probably, but, you know. When I realized that was going to be the resolution of that film, Batman v. Superman, Superman v. Batman? No, Batman v. Superman. Um, I was like, I can't, I can believe this is happening because DC is so far gone, Mm -hmm. but I also cannot believe this is happening. I know. That's the thing is that I thought, oh, you really didn't, just didn't think of this at all. And... And this wasn't a first draft. This was just like what we filmed. Right. Okay. And I was like, oh, Kathy Yan. And what's the woman who wrote Birds of Prey? Now I can't remember her name, which really sucks because she's fantastic. Um, there, you know, boys. that movie is about dealing with total fuckboys and how leaning on, you know, women who are also frustrated by fuckboys can lead to it a lot of power. Was it Gail, uh, No, it was. Uh, I'll find it. Okay. Um, so I, but I think that well. there's so much just to see that there's so oh. much joy possible. Um, Christina Hodgson. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So okay. that's right. Uh, you can tell a dark, violent story about people who have an enormous amounts of trauma without being, uh, <laughs> without really reducing it to, well, you know, we really are just kind of the same. Uh, Cause, right, and that's the only way we can identify with each other if we are exactly the same in this one respect. Um, um, yeah. yeah, so another film I saw that, you know, I have really gone on a journey with Old because let me just explain to you what happened. So I went to go see Old, and it is a fucking insane film. And I texted you immediately, and I was like, it's wild. I don't think it's good. Right. I remember that. I think I've started to come around, though, because the more I've thought about it, the more like it's definitely stuck with me. And I have to say, this is one of M. Night Shyamalan's like most ambitious films, I think. I really respect that he went for it. Mm. He really, really swung for the fences. This is a crazy film. I mean, it could still be the case that it's not good. But that it's well, interesting. I mean, I think that you here, can still say it's why, worth watching without trying to get like talk yourself all the way into saying that it was of great quality. But I think it's a little beyond that. It's not just say like, oh, this was interesting and like he tried interesting things, but they didn't work. 
he does really interesting things with the camera in this film and like very deliberate things where I was like, there are these flashes of brilliance with him but in all of his films. Didn't he hire a really famous cinematographer to work with him on this? Yeah, I do, I think he did do that. But it's it's beyond the cinematographer stuff. It It's like, it is the storytelling. It is a super ambitious film, what he's trying to do. And I like, he's always like, there are these little kernels of brilliance. And then ultimately, like, he overexplains the plot. And it's really clunky at the end because he has to do a big twist because he's M. Night and that's what he does. And everything sort of falls apart at the end. But the more I've been thinking about it, and I've been thinking about it a lot. Mm. I mean, like, it did make me cry. There's at the end of this film, the, you know, I mean, everybody knows now the premise is that people get old on this beach. Um, and the the main characters are this family. It's the the parents and their uh their kid, uh, two kids, sorry. And the parents get old at the end and they die. And but they had had a fight before getting on the speech. And at the end, it doesn't matter. They actually forget what they were fighting <laughs> about. And there's this beautiful sequence of them just looking at each other and him dying and her walking towards the water and then walking back and she dies as well. And it's like, it is like a really beautiful scene that made me cry. And I was like, I do think there's something to this film. Now, having said that, it is also that shit crazy. Well, and like and, wild things happen. You know, and this is where I'll come in with the big picture stuff. And then you can keep talking about the movie because I still want to hear more yeah. about it. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I, I continue to believe that one of the reasons why M. Night Shyamalan is allowed to keep making movies, because let's not forget, before he made Split, he was very persona non grata because his shit sucked. Oh, yes. I guess yeah, that... People, uh, do you remember they would used to... Whenever there was an M. Night Shyamalan trailer oh God. in a movie theater, people would laugh. Right. So, and I guess it started with Visit, which was very, like, much lower budget, whatever. But uh, he has... Since he's been doing that, he seems to have, have been thinking more about interesting concepts. And so even if he can't make it all work, he doesn't... He's not leaning into some of the the stupid... Like, utter stupidity. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to take this. I'm going to develop it. All right, great. There's a bunch of batshit crazy stuff that happens. But being a decent filmmaker, you can still create a scene at the end where you get really moved because, you know, the guy did give himself a little bit of a gimme because he made a movie where the villain is death. Like, <laughs> or not even death, <laughs> right. like, was aging, which who's not terrified well, of that? I mean, surprise, surprise, the huge, the quote unquote huge twist at the end is it's a pharmaceutical company who has discovered this like magic beach where people age and they can like use it to treat diseases in people and actually them dying benefits all of humanity. So it's like a necessary sacrifice. Again, it's one of those twist endings that he doesn't even fucking need. Why? I just wanted, I wanted the beach to be mysterious. I wanted it to be like lost and lost. Fuck the ending too, because they try to explain too much. It is okay. If the beach is just mysterious and Oh my God, is that the construction? No, that's, um, there's a they're doing military like air force exercises and um there's a fucking military the air force uses a strip so that's probably like an f-18 or something they um that sounded like it was landing on your roof uh yeah that's like there have been massive protests for years because the trump administration like decided that they were going to house the f-35s at this 
airstrip. Oh my god! Uh, that has dual civilian and military use. Anyway, sorry. That's holy shit. Um, so we are not happy because that's also going to create red zone uh, noise pollution in the right. one like where the one school for development, like poor developmentally disabled children, is. Sure. So, of course. Like, why not? Um, wow. But anyway, yeah, it's it uh, sometimes gets very loud because the military doesn't give a fuck about people. What? Since when? I don't know. Definitely today. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So, yeah, like, the thing is, I would be 100% okay if the beach was just mysterious and for some fucking reason people get old on it. I don't need this, like, extra, like, hat on a hat, you know, at the end because it actually devalues this emotional journey we've gone on because now we have talky-talky at the end where, once again, M. Night does this in all of his films, he has a character stand up and explain the whole fucking plot, which is like so clunky and like bad storytelling. And he does it every single yeah. time. Well, he's a terrible uh, writer. I mean, oof. let's. <laughs> well, I will say like he always is criticized for his clunky dialogue. And it's almost charming in, in this film because a lot of the clunky dialogue is being delivered by a kid who is like weirdly intelligent for his age and kind of socially awkward so when he is delivering these incredibly clunky lines it kind of sounds like this kid could be talking that way um so it sort of works i don't know i mean that's that that i can understand i i can't believe i'm gonna ask this i don't understand how having them on the beach aging really quickly helps humanity in terms of drug research is it because so you get it's an, to see how the drugs react over many years well, so for example there's a woman who has epileptic seizures uh-huh. and they want to test this drug to see if in the long term like her entire life basically they can stop the seizures and it doesn't stop the seizures her entire life but it's it's not until she's very very old like 70 years old that she has another seizure so they know from that trial that this drug will basically last people's entire lives until they're very old so it was a success wait but how did the how did she get the drugs for the middle part of her life right so what they do is every like two seconds to make like to account for the fact that her body is aging and metabolizing the chemicals so when they show up to the resort, they hand them like fancy cocktails. And I guess what we're to believe is those cocktails have been spiked with the drugs. Sure. But then they age. Mm-hmm. And then their bodies, so their bodies would hyper metabolize any of the drug that was in there. I, I and guess we're supposed to, to believe that these drugs are, can withstand that and right. last their so entire it's like lives. They don't need to. They, so the, it's the course of 24 hours as if they were taking one dose, but their bodies then age as if they were used. Okay. I've got problems with the science here, but we <laughs> don't need to get into that. If anyone is There's a medical, so many... like curious or somebody who understands chemistry has any ability to talk about how this might be possible, or if this is just truly ridiculous, please let us know. I'm very, very, very curious. <laughs> I mean, there is a moment in this film where we're to believe that uh, if you swim through some coral, you are protected from whatever is making you age on the island. So I would just say that the science really doesn't hold up if you <laughs> it too quickly. And that's what's so frustrating because it's like, all right, this already doesn't make any fucking sense, right? Why go the extra step of explaining the plot at the end? Just let it be mysterious. It's already fucking ridiculous. You've asked me to suspend my disbelief, and I have. Then why double down at the end with this weird pharmaceutical company explainy thing? 
Um, it's, it just, and the ending is, is not good either. Um, he did not write a good ending for it. Um, but yeah, there are moments. So I would say like, if you're looking for a weird ass film, you're already a fan of M night Shyamalan. I really do respect that. he like tried to go big Mm -hmm. here because he's not playing it safe. This is wild. Um, so I do think it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I will definitely see it at some point. And I, I want to just add that the reason why it looks so good is that the cinematographer, Mike Giolakis, uh, oh, right. is responsible for doing the cinematography on uh, It Follows um, mm-hmm. and oh, I, Us yeah. and Under the Silver Lake. And he did Split. You know, you just said It Follows there are these really long, beautiful tracking shots. Um, there's one where when they first get to the resort, it's like an all glass facade oh, of their, yeah. their hotel and their room. And he just tracks from one room to the other and follows them. Gorgeous. Then there is a scene that I still don't know how he actually pulled off where the kids are playing freeze tag on the beach and it's so creepy the way he follows them. And like, as soon as they touch each other and freeze, he frames them. And I, I really like, I can't explain it. It's just like a visual trick he pulls off. But I was like, what the fuck? Like, it's so unsettling the way he shoots it. But as soon as you said it follows, I was like, oh yeah, that, that film was filled with those moments. Yeah. So the guy on the roof, the guy on the roof. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's so, so this explains, uh, as so I, as long as he continues to do work with M. Night Shyamalan, I will be much more inclined to see it because at least I know mm-hmm. that there will be part, it will look good and beautiful and unsettling whether or not the story itself holds together. Yeah. And this film is uh, filled with really interesting character actors. I just want to shout out quickly before we move on Abby Lee, who uh, y'all probably know from Mad Max Fury Road. She played the dag, the very tall woman with the long white hair. Um, She's in this movie. She's great. I'm consistently impressed by her because um, she was also in. um, Oh, shit. I'm spacing on the name of it. The HBO series. pulp um hold on i'm just pulling her up right now i'm forgetting uh but she you know she was a model and she started acting and i know people had an attitude about it where they were sort of like oh model turned actress she's fucking good she's a good actress um and i think she's proven herself by now so i believe uh, she's um, in Lovecraft Country. Is what she was in. Thank you, Lovecraft Country. Uh, she's like yeah. a main character in that. So um, I mean, shocking though. Let's or not so shocking that it turns out that um, think about who played the wives: oh, Zoe Kravitz, Abby Lee, uh, Riley, Riley Keough, and then um, Jason Statham's wife, whatever Rosie Huntington Whiteley, who not yes, so much, but she's, she's great. at least charming. Like, oh, yeah. I loved her. She like I, she had so little oh. time to like connect, and I was like, I buy it. Oh, I buy she was it. great in that movie, but she's not. She's acting is not necessarily her strength. Like <laughs> okay. most of okay. the time, her acting is not her strength. But I think, sure. uh, you know, that we got one incredibly thin blonde woman <laughs> uh, who was a good actress out of that. Like, yeah. And we got the weirder one. Like, Abby definitely, like, she, what I like about her is she always approaches roles with uh, 
the most intelligence and she's not afraid to make fun of herself and she's really not afraid to get fucking weird. Um, and there is a horrible uh, body horror moment with her in this film that is uh, truly something to see. Oh, God. I'm not going to think about it. I know I'm not uh, going to think about it. <laughs> all right. And then finally, and I'm not going to spoil this one because Meredith hasn't seen it, but I highly, highly, highly recommend Pig. The Nicolas Cage. I texted Meredith immediately after I saw it. And I said, I think this is my favorite Nicolas Cage performance. And I stand by it. Um, it's really like shockingly good. Yeah. And that, I mean, to call something your favorite Nicolas Cage performance. I know. It's it's a lot. Objectively bonkers. Just I know what we're talking about here. But for I sure. also respect it, and so that <laughs> makes me even more excited. Uh, I also responded by asking, "Will it make me cry?" Uh, mm-hmm. And apparently, the answer is yes. But very much so. You know, I just, of course, I do indeed want to have a chance to watch. You know, feel what it would be like to be Nicolas Cage's pig. Uh, and you will experience that watching this film. Also, a great showing by Alex Wolf. He's in this movie as well. They have amazing chemistry together. Um, and Nicolas Cage is he's just doing the thing that only a very seasoned actor can do, which is he's not doing a like he's not chewing the scenery. It's a very quiet, intense performance. If you're looking for like a revenge flick, like um Oh my god! I cannot think of any movie title. Are you talking about John Wick? John Wick? John Wick? Yeah. John Wick. Yeah. Um, if you're looking for something like John Wick, probably not the film for you. It's it's a revenge film, but not in that sense. He's very quiet. He's very intense, and like the moments he picks are incredible. And it's just like that patience from a seasoned actor that you would only find in someone like Nicolas Cage. And it helps you remember like, oh, right, you're one of the greatest living actors. Someone who decided that this was the time uh, to, <laughs> to finally like rein it in. This is the time to be restrained. He's like, I did Willie's right. Wonderland and I didn't talk. And, <laughs> and yet, Mandy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. He's doing yeah. a lot of movies where he doesn't really talk, but there's a lot of crazy fucking shit happening. This feels yeah, a lot more contemplative. Sometimes when he takes those roles where he barely has any dialogue, I feel like, did somebody just need a paycheck? And the answer with Nicolas Cage is yes, he's in a lot of tax debt. Um, but with this film, it, it's, a, again, a no-talky film. But it feels very artistic and, like, that is earned, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so highly recommend. Check out Pig! With trigger warnings. And if you specifically want to know why I'm saying that, um, message yeah. me and I'll tell you why. Yeah. I um, I have watched a ton of movies and read books and kinds, like all kinds of things. And yet the one thing I want to just put a plug in <laughs> for is actually uh-huh. an older movie, but I was reminded of how much I love it uh, because we're talking about Barry Keegan Mm. Killing of a Sacred Deer. Woo! Uh, and again, this also requires a trigger warning. Of its oh, own. boy. But yes. uh, it is, I mean, talk about someone using artificially stilted dialogue and strange, un, like, almost inhuman robotic delivery from the actors to tell a story. Like, God, it's weird. And Barry Keegan yeah. is the, like, 
as a troubled teenage boy who becomes, who sort of weirdly befriends slash becomes obsessed with Colin Farrell, who plays a family man and a doctor in Cincinnati. Um, and it's now I can't remember which fucking Greek tragedy or Yorgos. Yeah, but it's, oh, no, it's oh, it I is like uh, it's a retelling of an of a of a classics play. Um, right. But yeah, Yorgos Lanthimos is the director, and this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I realized that it makes me sound like a broken person, but Killing of a Sacred Deer is my favorite Yorgos movie. I think it's mine as well, although I really loved Lobster. But he's interesting because you couldn't really call what he does mumblecore, but it, it is it is what you're saying, where like the dialogue is very stilted. Um and it works really well in this film. He also did what was his like not his first film, but uh, Dog Tooth. Dog Tooth. Yeah, Dog Tooth is incredible. I mean, he uses that he uses that style to create a sense of un, like of discomfort and horror that means mm-hmm. that his movies end up playing like horror films, even when they're not exactly that. Like you just end up feeling way more freaked out then the story that you just watched makes you feel like you should. And yeah, yeah, he doesn't do jump scares. He just taps into like your purest existential dread. Yeah. <laughs> and then forces you to watch actors who you're very familiar with, like do this thing. I don't know how he, I don't, I just, I, I'm so curious how he directs his actors, you know, what does he say to Nicole Mm. Kidman and Colin Farrell in before they do some of their scenes so that they Mm -hmm. get the right tone? Um, I believe that Barry Keegan got it immediately because that guy (laughs) knows how to be creepy. Oh my God. Every time he shows up, you're just like, Oh fuck. Like this is about to make a hard left turn. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, Oh, but that actually was one of the reasons why I got so excited because I saw when I saw Barry Keegan in the trailer for The Green Knight, I was like, OK, this is already going to be good because at the very least, whatever section of the movie he is in is going to fucking rule. <laughs> I want to know whatever the fuck him and Timothy Chalamet are working on because they've been <gasps> posting photos together. And he posted this very cryptic thing where he was like, write the thing or something. And I was like, are y'all writing a movie? Because that's going to be bonkers. <laughs> oh, I am. Um... Wow, that's going to really mess me up uh, in some ways. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have some other similar thing that I was thinking of. But really, yeah, just give me give me Barry Keegan doing something weird with Timmy Chalamet. And keep Delta away long enough for us to be able to go see Dune at Dear long last. God, please. I'm going regardless. I'll die. I don't care. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I well, I, I, the... the the person I will be going with when it finally comes out said his exact words were, I will wear a hazmat suit as long as I get to see it on an IMAX. Hell so. yeah. That, that's the attitude. And you have to see Dune and IMAX. I'm not going to watch it at fucking home on HBO. Are you kidding me? Oh, no. Um, this is, guys, yeah. look. Sometimes the pop culture section's an hour, okay? Um, because I don't want to I don't want to talk about news. And I'm clearly procrastinating. But we're going to get to it now. Let's all hold hands and cry. <gasps> Here's bad news. All right. So 
I guess we have to talk about, oh my God, apparently I wanted to talk about the Jeopardy hosts. That's how badly I didn't want to talk about news, guys. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, we'll talk about the Jeopardy hosts for like 10 minutes. Everybody will love that. Oh my God. Um, I swear I had other things that I wanted to talk about and they've all just completely <laughs> left my mind because we. I started thinking about the Green Knight and then talking about movies and not wanting to talk about uh, what's oh, happening today seriously. as we film. You know, it's, and I, this is not to say that we don't care deeply. It's because we care deeply that we yes are very, very not. Massively yeah. depressed. Yeah. Yeah. We just really don't want to talk about the developing absolute fuck shit show that is uh, going to be how we talk about the United States' withdrawal from Afghanistan. <laughs> Oh, my God. I didn't I literally did not even put that in the bad news section because I'm like, I can't I can't talk. about this. Well, here's Um, here's all I have to say about it. Yes. Even uh, and I don't know, there might be other listeners who have this happen. I think, you know. I know kids from high school who were part of the first wave of soldiers, 18, were 18, 19, 20 years old when they got sent over. I know some of them were. Some of them who were killed by IEDs. Yeah. Um, I have friends who were over there who lost family. I know, like, I have a friend, uh, acquaintance more, whatever, but uh, who's in Kabul right now, and he's a journalist. Like, it's still very real and, like, personal. But I also, uh, that makes me even more angry that all of these same pieces of shit who 20 years ago were, you know, banging the drums about how we have to save the women and girls of Afghanistan just as a smokescreen to go in and prove to whoever was sitting around as like a former KGB office to be like, fuck you, Russia. We actually took over Afghanistan. I just, the dick wagging and posturing over the so-called Biden misstep of doing this completely ignores the context of the fact that our entire adult lives, this has been happening and people that did make it like the people that we went to high school with who did make it Mm -hmm. back have kids who some of them have kids who are almost old enough to sign up for the military. Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I mean, if they signed up at 18 and got deployed, they could easily have a 16, 17 year old child. Wow. Um, They probably don't, but that's like, like terrifying to me. To see some of the same talking heads who have like been wrong about this stuff every step of the way, they should like keep track of who was wrong about Iraq and Afghanistan. And if you were cheerleading those invasions and occupations, you don't get to come back on the news. I know. And I think it is, there's just, we did a bad thing and there is no way to fix it. No, we have to and if you stop think, doing like, the bad. Like this, it's classic sunk thing. cost fallacy. And I know that it's terrible to say that when we're talking about real human lives and a path of destruction that is probably not recoverable. Uh, mm-hmm. But the answer is not to continue throwing trillions right. of dollars and violence and arms and empire that's into what it. no one is saying out loud no one is saying like is your solution permanent occupation because that's insane and insustainable yeah and you know like why we can't say all right we're planning for this and we're getting everybody that we can out immediately like they could have gotten they could have taken care of 
women's rights, human rights advocates, anyone who was afraid for their life, anyone who had worked as a translator, they could have had them on plane weeks ago because this they knew yeah. this was coming. And right. I imagine that a lot of this was related to the same opposition that kept a lot of these people from being able to get refugee or special immigrant, um, yep. like special like SIV visas um, mm-hmm. before because people like Lindsey Graham have been opposing those programs for a decade almost. Um, And so, yeah, of course they don't mind that people's lives are in danger. Uh, And I, the rest of it is too profoundly depressing, but I just think about it. The (laughs) military is about to bomb you for criticizing. Oh my God, it's coming back. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to tell you this, but you're absolutely about to die. Uh, Um, I mean, it would be, oh, you know, but I do live in a super liberal city, so it would be kind of like on brand for the Air Force to suddenly just drop a bomb. They'd be like, right. whatever. Just deal with it. Well, you just got to nip this in the bud right now. Yeah. Yeah. They um, send a bunch of soldiers to the across the border to Illinois to buy a bunch of fireworks, have them tie them together, and then pull whatever they did in L.A. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Yeah. Sorry. They did basically bomb that neighborhood. Um, they did. Uh, yeah. So, so not so good. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing that I just is, it's so frustrating because anytime we talk about Afghanistan as a country, there's this pearl clutching about the Taliban taking mm-hmm. over again. And it's like, yes, of course that was always going to happen. It's almost as though you've occupied a country that for thousands of years was ruled by tribal lords you know like so of course the taliban's going to come back in of course they're going to seize control they're the only semblance of infrastructure that this country had um and uh and not just that it doesn't matter if they're not popular we had 20 years to figure out a way for this to function yeah if we did it it's like if after 20 years the government and the military, the government falls, the military abandons their posts and decides to go try and hide out with their families and not get caught being and murdered for serving in the Afghan military. If all of that can happen in a matter of days, we fucked up. Like right. it has, you know, exactly. That is our, that's on empire. That's not on the Taliban for being mustache twirling cave monsters. <laughs> right. Um, um two so, decades yeah two fucking decades it'll be 20 like, years in october do we even have a tally of how much money was spent no. um i mean we certainly yeah. we barely have a tally of how much money we lost on random pallets I just think- truckloads of cash disappeared in the desert and we were sort of like oh well <laughs> i know and we're like and then we also let the weapons go um yeah this is i mean all of it's terrible i I will say there is a fantastic book that was written by a journalist, uh, Anand Gopal, called No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. And Anand is a genius, uh, multilingual, basically learned several different dialects in order to go, like, during once the war on terror began so that he mm-hmm. could do things like talk to people in Pakistani prisons and talk to people in Afghanistan. So he spends, he traces three people who are dealing with the aftermath of the war on terror. One Taliban commander, a housewife, I think, who's outside of Kandahar, and, uh, and a warlord 
who's backed by the United States. It's mm. so he, and he had access, like he was in the fucking mountains with these, you know, with the Taliban, with the, you know, physically with these warlords, um, no translator necessary kind of stuff. It's just wow. a spectacular book that set, that tells in the voices of real humans who may well be dead because it came out a few years ago. Um, how, like how much folly it was even in like 2012, how, how badly we had already botched it. Um, and I, I think it's just in some ways, I think these stories can feel a little bit hard to find an entry point into because mm-hmm. we have the big picture stuff. And then there's everybody who wants to talk about the long, dry history. And Anand is just really good at telling these people's stories. So uh, if you want something that gives you a little bit more of a personal sense that uh, of what people are thinking about how this conflict and, you know, was a snapshot, but it's really worthwhile. And um, you can, you know, buy it at an indie bookstore or order it through an indie seller and, uh, and read it. Cause he's a spectacular journalist who even a decade ago had solid insight into what was happening and what it's was so going to sad. happen. <laughs> it's so sad. That part of that recommendation was like, what should be basic journalism where it's like, yeah, you talk to people on the ground. Yeah. Well, he decided he wasn't going to go and embed. He like, embed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he, like, grew his beard out. He went, he was, like, laboring with people. I mean, this, he used his incredible intelligence and, like, almost insane levels of risk capacity to do things that I think a lot of people wouldn't do and shouldn't do. Um, but he he did well and made it, you know, made it happen. And I think that's, you know, that's really important. And also... Um, there are articles by a woman, uh, BuzzFeed, I don't know if she's there anymore, Azmat Khan. Um, I don't know if we want to put this, I'll, I'll send this article to you, Allison. There's one about the ghost schools of Afghanistan. So it's another, mm-hmm. um, people getting money to start schools and then taking the money and then nothing happening. So it's really, uh, you know, she was able to uncover an enormous amount of, um, corruption and like, excuse me, things to be cynical about. And I, mm-hmm. I think like they, those two people are people that I, I definitely think are trustworthy on what's happening. Um, so if you start to get sick of, of people like blathering on the news or people shouting at each other on Twitter, there's stuff that is out there that's easily accessible that you can read that, um, will actually like still make your blood boil, but at least will make you feel like you have a better, like an actual slightly better understanding. Yeah. Speaking of cynicism, that's the other bad news story I wanted to talk about, which was, uh, I don't know if y'all heard, but July was the planet's hottest month ever recorded. We did it everybody. Um, but I specifically wanted to talk about the uh, IPCC report that just came out. Not necessarily the details of the report, which you can go read a summary of. I'm not going to repeat it here. But it's not good, guys. It's actually very bad. But I immediately saw people reacting to the report and to climate change in general on Twitter. And, you know, understandably, a lot of people feel very um, depressed, uh, scared, cynical. 
And there was this immediate response by, I don't want to say like moderate Dems, but you know, not the lefties on Twitter, sort of like finger wagging at the cynics. Um, and I just want to say, fuck off. You know, like I, I understand why people feel cynical. If your way of dealing with this stuff is very, very dark humor, I'm with you. It's a really scary time. We have a government that's clearly not going to do anything about climate change. So if you're feeling bad about it, I would say um, that's probably just because you're a, a human being who's paying attention. Yeah. Well, and uh, one of the things that a few people I know who have been trying, who've been working in, in climate change or working on environmental communications, journalism, like working on trying to get this message out, that they keep hammering and keep reminding me if I ever tell them that I'm feeling sad is that Mm -hmm. it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel cynical. The one thing it isn't okay to do, or there are two things that we shouldn't do. One is beat ourselves up over our individual failures because this is not happening because of our individual failures or our individual um, complacency. This is a massive systemic capitalism caused problem that we have that is happening and worsening because people in power decided that it was better to say you can all fuck off and die we're going to take the money um and then uh so that's don't blame yourself but then also don't get so discouraged that you don't look for opportunities to connect with people to start your own more collective drives towards action that there, mm-hmm. you know, yes, it is true that a recycling drive isn't going to fix things, but connecting with climate justice ad- advocates is still valuable and is still important and that there are ways that you can connect and, and contribute. So, um, and I, I that's actually, a much healthier yeah. <laughs> approach than me yelling fuck off at everyone. <laughs> Well, I mean, you can still yell fuck off at everyone, but I <laughs> I took a lot of comfort in that because it felt yeah. significantly more manageable than my usual response, which is like, please let me take a scythe to ExxonMobil's board and just be like, hello, guys, beat the hammer and sickle. And then like, I mean, I support that. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not a good idea. I'm just saying (laughs) it's not as workable as, say, like, keeping track of some of the the protests against a pipeline that is very much still in process in Wisconsin that a lot of the First Nations peoples have been organizing around and supporting people in Minnesota who are the, the tribal leaders in Minnesota who are doing that and, like, contributing to jail support and you know, keeping on that monitoring, like those things do feel useful. And I think there's almost always a way to connect with those kinds of causes that can feel better than just, I really wish that we could, you know, is, is the net gain of firebombing the building like Exxon and like a couple of plastics companies, like is the carbon output, offset by getting rid of the entire power structure kind of stuff. Like it just ends up, that is a situation where you start to end, like feel as if you're 
you know, I you're just, defeating yourself by by starting to get dark. You know, you're poisoning yourself with frustration rather than. Um, I I just keep laughing every time I hear one of the jets. Now I'm like, is that? It, does it just go on all day like that? No, the weekend it's it's definitely worse today, which is surprising. Um, <laughs> they know we're talking, Meredith. They're trying to silence us. <laughs> The man. Uh, Don't it, ask me details. It's just the man trying to silence us. Last weekend, uh, one flew by at about 10 a.m., maybe 9 a.m., and it woke me up. And it was Ugh, so loud that I could hear things rattling. <gasps> That's crazy. Because yeah. they're apparently they get a special dispensation to fly at especially low altitudes <gasps> Great. across the city. Because they're on their way back from whatever thing they were doing. It's like, guys, this is not okay. Why don't you? Yeah, you would think, especially when people are like very stressed because of, I don't know, the pandemic that's killed over 600,000 people. You would think they wouldn't try to make things extra stressful by flying um, jets very low over your homes. I'm sorry, everyone. I have honestly gotten kind of used to it. And to me, it's like (laughs) hearing a bus or a truck go by on a it's street truly in Brooklyn, insane but every time i hear it i'm like that is so loud um it's really but anyways not guys loud, but yes <laughs> so yes on, the military the- is about to invade madison and afghanistan <laughs> has fallen and climate change uh we should still not lose hope at the very we least maybe we can lose hope but we shouldn't stop doing things right so on that note, on the note of not losing hope, here's your good news. So obviously... <laughs> What's the matter? Oh, I Go just ahead. feel really bad because I, I did not expect so many of these fucking planes to be. No, I like it. It's like a theme now because we were talking about Afghanistan and the military. And now it's like, yeah, it, you know, it's like it adds an, an extra layer of suspense. Like, is Meredith going to be bombed yeah. at some point during this episode? I think that this is where your improv training really comes in handy because to <laughs> me, I want to minimize it. And to you, all you no, think no. is, oh, my God, this is a great bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we got to lean into it now. Now we got to heighten. Um so obviously I wanted to talk about Cuomo. Oh God. Um, finally, finally, finally having to resign because he could not stop sexually harassing women because he's Italian. Who would have thought? I, I, I just couldn't. Have- I, I can't explain guys that that's his explainer. He was like, I'm Italian and you know how Italians are. I mean, I do, but that's because I've been to Italy, but like <laughs> they'll say a lot of things that doesn't necessarily like they're not. It's been a long time since it was reasonable to think that it was unsafe to walk around Rome because someone was going to really grope you. You know what I mean? Yes. And also, you're not an Italian man. You live in New York. You're the governor of New York. So that's not even an excuse. Not that it was ever a good excuse to begin with. And also very offensive to Italians. Italians should take uh, that as an insult. So, yeah, he finally had to step down following, like, I, I don't even remember how many allegations we got up to. I think we got up to like 12 allegations against him. Well, 12 allegations uh, in that report, I think. And then right. there were at least a half a dozen other investigations into his 
like potential inappropriate behavior in different like different realms that weren't related to sexual harassment. He was also being accused of of misappropriating funds and cronyism and things. So right. this one got him out or made him stand up and said he would say he was going. Right. And now there's a question of like, will he be impeached or not impeached? And, you know, obviously there's a lot of pressure on Albany right now to impeach him because it's like, yes, he stepped down. But they could potentially go further with that, Mm -hmm. um, which they should. Absolutely. And the reason is that if they impeach him, then he can't run for office again. And if he leaves without being impeached, he has the potential to come back. And the question and I think smartly people are calling for impeachment to can like to go forward because he absolutely has the level of hubris required to send like to try to come back and be like, it wasn't so bad, guys. Absolutely, he'll come back. Like anybody who doesn't know that he will try to come back doesn't understand like what an egomaniacal asshole Cuomo is. He absolutely doesn't think he did anything wrong. He thinks he's the victim in this situation and he will come back if he can. So that's why impeachment is important. Um, But yeah, I'm putting this in the good news section because fuck Andrew Cuomo. For so many reasons, like obviously this is uh, the most recent terrible thing he's done that has come to light. But let's also remember, like, you know, throwing out the real numbers of how many New Yorkers were dying during the pandemic. Um, There's just so many things that he has done that are terrible. Um, Also maintaining power for so many years, specifically through... uh, convincing conservative Democrats to start like the independent democratic caucus, like the IDC allowed the Republicans to retain control of the state Senate and let Cuomo be really, you know, shitty about all kinds of things that were really important because he just didn't want to deal with it. So he just convinced a couple, like a few Democrats to say they were going to caucus with the Republicans instead of, uh, and encouraged it. So he kneecapped his own party. Uh, just so that he could retain a certain amount of of strongman power. Um, And what was the thing where he didn't want to change? There was some law he didn't want to change because he was, he didn't want it to, he was like too many black people use it. Oh, I don't even remember what this is. Uh, I'm looking it up right now because it's new. Um, I'm just also curious, like how much longer Chris Cuomo is going to be able to slide as like a talking head. <laughs> uh, given that um, apparently, well, if our friends at crazy days and nights are any indication, uh, probably he'll be around forever because Jeff Zucker is the reason why um, the tubes is back on TV. Oh, right. Guys, you remember Jeffrey Tubin? Remember when he flashed his little dick at everybody? He's back, baby. You can't keep a, a good man down. Um, you can even flash your your D in front of all of your colleagues um, and be like, oops, I didn't know the camera was on. I was just going <laughs> to have a quick masturbation sesh. Sorry you guys all witnessed that. Um, yeah, he got to come back from that, which is just like, what? Yeah. So I have a feeling that Chris Cuomo will not go uh, go anywhere. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, these guys cannot fail enough to just stay gone forever. Um, um, and so, I will find that. I will find this 
story that I'm thinking of because I saw a headline and it was one of those like he said something to a state senator about why he wasn't going to like why he didn't want something to continue. And he basically told a black legislator that he uh, didn't support it because he didn't want your his, he's like, I don't want your people taking advantage of it or something. And it was your real. people. Oh, my God. I don't know that. It was bad enough that that's how I remember it. That is not the quote, but I will find sure. it and then we will make it available. That was the spirit so, of the moment. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, in good news, just because we've been covering this story, I feel we should include the update to it. Um, after months of public pressure from supporters of Britney Spears, Jamie Spears, who is Britney's father, signaled in a legal response on Thursday that he intends to step down as conservator of her estate. Which is great. Uh, that's what everyone wanted, including Britney. So, um, yay. And also, Jamie Spears is an asshole and can go fuck himself. Yeah. And much like Andrew Cuomo, I am not going to sell. Ce- I'm not truly celebrating until I actually right. like see the story that the papers have been signed and he is no longer in charge. A hundred percent. I think that is a good way to approach this because, yeah, as we know, things can change. Um yeah, Cuomo, I will not fully celebrate until I see him wheeling his little suitcase out of wherever he lives. Yeah. <laughs> I, Is it still in a state? I don't know. I hope that Kathy Holchel, because she said, because she's very famous for being upstate New York, she's said that she will appoint a lieutenant governor from New York City. Okay. I hope that it is just the bitchiest queen Oh God, that would be so great. Uh, I, I feel like we it'll all be, deserve like, that. If even if there was a really bitchy like queen that would come in and do that, uh, that they would be hopelessly corrupt because it's New York City politics. Sure, but I really, I just want, I just need something. Just give me something. I guess we should mention too. Like I texted you because I was like, "What up with Kathy Hochul?" Just I didn't know anything about her, um, and it kind of seems like that's her deal sort of that she's just like a blank slate and everyone's like i guess (laughs) yeah i mean she's been she's been working she's been around this is the um i mean being in a state where we went from having scott walker to tony evers having Mm -hmm. a boring governor rules it doesn't mean that good things happen necessarily because they're still the problem of the legislature and the courts but Somebody who is not a piece of shit and is boring can get an awful lot done. Completely. Um, So here's to boring governors. Um, Here's to Meredith not getting bombed, at least on this Um, episode. Deeply grateful. Uh, Hashtag blessed. I want to say I really don't want to get bombed because my neighborhood is one of the places that uh, it so often very often hosts uh the 16 piece steely dan tribute band steely dane <laughs> and what would the world do without those 16 people yes so please everybody please follow meredith on twitter at meredith l clark you can follow late trees and news on all the socials we're on twitter we're on instagram not on facebook anymore because fuck facebook And yeah, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend, what's left of it. And uh, yeah, get outside and cause a little trouble.